0: Call ClayGranger.com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done.
1: He had amassed so much power that by the early, you know, late 50s, early 60s, he, no one could control him.
0: Moses is so ingrained in the history of New York City. At the height of his power, the master builder looking to renew a city, a city broken, a city too old. At the height of his power, he held 12 offices, among them City Parks Commissioner, State Parks Council Head, State Power Commission, Chairman of the Triborough Bridge Authority. From the 1920s to the late 60s, he'd build 13 bridges in the city, 658 playgrounds, 150,000 housing units, and 416 miles of parkways. His first projects came from the huge monies of public spending for the PWA and the WPA as part of the New Deal. In 1936, he built the Triborough Bridge connecting Manhattan, Bronx, and Queens in New York City, said the New Yorker. Between 46 and 54, no public improvement of any type, no school or sewer, was built on any city location unless Moses approved it. Even the United Nations building today retains his mark. Yet that New Yorker article was written in a time when there was a very positive image of Robert Moses. Moses had a bit of a dark side. He destroyed tenements but also seemed to detest the people who were living in them. A recent study of his parkways confirmed that their overpass clearance is well below those of surrounding causeways, those built by other builders. A step that many point to was made to avoid buses and mass transit. Some of his supporters say barring big vehicles was aligned with other goals of barring noisy trucks. Robert Moses is a controversial figure, and at a certain point, he's going to meet his match, and we'll talk about that in a bit. We spoke with Greg Young, and you may know him from the Bowery Boys podcast, a podcast about New York City history. Yeah, so today, I'm really pleased to have Greg Young from the Bowery Boys podcast. does that show along with Tom Myers. How long have you been doing that, uh, Graham?
1: Hey there, first of all, Hello. Thanks for having me on the show. We have been doing it, believe it or not. It just doesn't make any sense every time I say it out loud. Um, <laughs> almost eleven years. It'll be eleven. It'll be our our eleventh. The eleven years ago, um, in June. Well over ten wow. years. So
0: you know, we. Uh, I think we started at the same time.
1: Oh, brilliant. Yeah, so I have a question. How did we discover what a podcast even was?
0: (laughs) I know. I I know. I remember even the big clunky iPods, you know, and that's what we were broadcasting for back then. But your show is a show about New York City history.
1: Yep. You know, which is a broad subject and and we do it. It's broad on purpose so that we can talk about... Any and all aspects in the 400 years or so of New York City and its you know, precursor New Amsterdam and even, of course, the, uh, the Native Americans who lived here.
0: I recall uh, just recently listening to, it was a rebroadcast of your episode about the Great Blizzard of 1888, which really particularly hit uh, New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, how you know the trains were were stuck, and these were elevated trains at the time, and the people were stuck up there in the trains for a long time. And yeah, uh,
1: that's like one of these shows that um, has real that story has unique relevance because mm-hmm. it's essentially about um, how a city changes after a major catastrophic weather event, <laughs> and you know, New York has gone through quite a few of those. (laughs) And in the case of that one, in the case of the great blizzard of 1888, um, the, I mean, a few major changes. I mean, as, as you mentioned, having all of those sort of overground railroads elevated above people, um, those didn't do so well Mm -hmm. in storms, (laughs) uh, storms like that. Um, you know, more seriously, You know, this is the era when electricity was shiny and new, and a lot of those electrical wires were above ground, along with the telephone telegraph wires. Um, And so that didn't. those all kind of went down during that storm, and it was uh, quite alarming. So the city changed a lot of the ways it did these very basic infrastructure things because of that storm, and we still live with those decisions that they made because of that storm.
0: I always find myself that looking at something with a regional approach can often be very enlightening, and we can learn about history by learning about regions.
1: The way we sort of approach it is quasi local because we have two approaches. One of them is that we try to put as many actual locations in a show as possible. And it, mm-hmm. you know clearly that's for people who are walking through the city, meaning it's the, you know, for locals. But so many of these stories have a national and international reach. So we just passed the anniversary of a, the horrible tragedy that happened in New York called the triangle factory fire. Yes. Um, which killed dozens of people and it, it, it really put a spotlight on sort of poor work conditions. Um, There were poor working conditions all over the United States, and there had been tragedies like this for many, many years, but this was sort of the one that called the most attention, and things changed across the country.
0: One of the issues that you hear a lot about now is infrastructure, Mm -hmm. and obviously being the major city in the country for so long, New York City was a center of infrastructure development. Mm -hmm. We hear a lot of talk about it now. During the New Deal in the 40s and 50s, New York was the recipient of a lot of infrastructure money. I wonder if you could talk a bit about it, about New York City and infrastructure, and maybe there's something that could inform the debates we're having today. You know, the way I approach it is infrastructure is always seen as it just seems like it's something good. And it could be good, but I guess it's more complicated than that.
1: It is, and it's no more. It's been no more. Is that illustrated than in New York City history? There's sort of two. I am so pro infrastructure to this day, because the needs of a, of a city are always changing, and what was a really good idea fifty years ago may not be so good today. But there's two big problems that kind of thread themselves through New York City's own relationship with um, with infrastructure. One of them is just the relationship between these projects and government. And what I, what I mean to say more explicitly is corruption. In the 19th century in particular, certainly happens in the 20th century and even to today in, in, on certain levels, these infrastructure projects like Central Park and the Brooklyn Bridge Weren't just seen as a way to make the city better, but they were seen as a way to enrich those sort of in the upper corridors of city government that were in charge of this huge network of graft um, and payoffs and kickbacks. A project could be outlandish, would, would be five times more than it actually needed to be because of all the different kind of like payoffs that happened. You know, the most famous example of this, of course, is Boss Tweed and the democratic machine Tammany Hall, which, you know, lined their pockets for decades on all sorts of infrastructure projects from those elevated trains to the development of bridges and eventually tunnels. That's one concern. Is an infrastructure project being done altruistically or is it being done to kind of like enrich those people who are voting for it and putting it into process? You know, the second thing is, are these infrastructure projects, are they good for all New Yorkers? You know, are they good for all the people in which they're going to be developed for, mm-hmm. or only for one section or one segment? And that's the kind of thing. Those are kind of the issues that you come across in the 20th century. Um And in particular, we can spend a few moments talking about um, the Bowery Boys' pet history figure, the one who up the most, and his name is Robert Moses. So Moses is really responsible for many of the great infrastructural projects in New York in the 20th century. Pretty much everything that you can complain and bitch about today in the 21st century was something that Robert Moses dreamt up in the mid-20th century he came up at the time he was um he pops up in the scene beginning in the in the late 1920s he worked for governor Al Smith but then um was appointed was uh was appointed by New York mayor Fiorello LaGuardia in the 30s to basically run the parks department and from there he just began amassing different kinds of power so that he you know he he essentially could craft the city of his own you know, of his own desires. Nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. He's coming into prominence in a period of the automobile, and everyone thought this was the direction that the world was going to go. And in fact, in many ways, it it did. And in many ways, the automobile made New York a great place. But Robert Moses kind of like exploited this idea or saw it into fruition over the next few decades. It's a very mixed legacy, shall we say. Because, you know, he built a vast system of subways and bridges and came up with very clever and ingenious ways of paying for those using fair money from bridges like the Triborough Bridge, but also uh, primarily using after the Great Depression, there was all of this government funding. That he could now use. And he, he got very, very good at being able to, to find ways of using government funding for these projects that he wanted to build. And so as a result, New York became an automobile city. But the problem is, is that he was looking at it from a certain perspective, but one perspective was not actually from the perspective of New Yorkers was trying to make a city run, but he wasn't really looking at the neighborhoods. He wasn't looking at individual communities and he wasn't looking at trying to make New York a better place to live. He was trying to make it a sort of a more efficient place to get around in because of all of that. A lot of many of his projects ended up sending New York New Yorkers out of the city and encouraged people. Oh, there's all these great new roads. Um, Let's get out of the city, <laughs> uh, one thing. And then another, a, a pro- more seriously, is he, um, his projects were often very um, prejudiced, were often um, not for everyone in New York but for, for certain classes in New York. You can see how this plays out in everything from his Long Island parks and his parkways.
0: It's to take you out of the city, first of all, in an automobile, which not everybody's going to have in the 30s and 40s.
1: Exactly. Only people of a certain wealth class had them, and some of his early projects in Long Island, such as Jones Beach and all those I mean, those are really impressive, great places for the public, but a lot of the... Um, the roads and the overpasses and the bridge the, uh that he built um you can't take a bus on them; they're too low, so that is like well, you can only go out here if you have a car. you know then it gets a little bit more fraught once you get to like the fifties and the sixties, and he is he has amassed an immense amount of power and and there were just a series of mayors that were kind of like he could really sort of call the shots.
0: Moses lives till the early 1980s, but his true downfall and lack of influence in the city comes when he proposes a new highway that would run down Bloom Street. Uh, The lower Manhattan Expressway, which was to be built in the 1950s, was to be a 10-lane elevated highway. The Cross Bronx Expressway was six lanes that would cut through the neighborhoods of Soho and Little Italy and destroy the iconic Washington Square Park in the village.
1: He didn't care. I guess that's perhaps one of the um, things to take away with Robert Moses is that it didn't bother him because he was just trying to make things efficient.
0: The plans have been delayed for several years. We're picking up steam again. Moses wanted better access and a Fifth Avenue address to a massive urban renewal project that he was doing just south of the historic Washington Square Park. Jane Jacobs and her neighbors wanted to protect the park where she brought her kids to play. Here's what Henry James, author of a novel about Washington Square, said about this historic park. It was a place of established repose, as if the wine of life had been poured for you in some pleasant old punch bowl. Wharton, Whitman, Poe, Crane were drawn there. Then came the artist, de Kooning, Hopper, Pollock, Kerouac, Dillon, Baez, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Home to protest, marches, riots. The park had come to symbolize free speech. But for most, it was just a place to hang out.
1: The, the real people who sort of made, who started the ball rolling and getting sort of Robert Moses and his ideals overturned were those in little neighborhoods like the west village you know that were going to be decimated by a robert moses project but those people happened to have um a little money and they happened to have some sort of influence and were able to stand up and push against him and that kind of got the ball rolling but yeah i mean the the
0: village was always kind of uh even going back into the 20s kind of the art artiste neighborhood uh
1: Yeah, even it's been for for over a hundred years. I mean, Mm. I think a lot of people hear Greenwich Village and they think 1960s. Right. It was like folk music and beat poetry and everything. But really, it had been the sort of bohemian area. It was also like a big African-American neighborhood there. And there was also a big Italian neighborhood there. And to this day, you'll see some vestiges of that. But then a lot of it was, um, yeah, like bohemian. I mean, a lot of New York's deep artistic roots will trace itself right through Greenwich Village, and so um, by the 1950s, I mean you already had um, people moving into refurbishing townhouses and brownstones, and these these neighborhoods have a certain identity that makes them beautiful and valuable, and makes them a like the sort of ideal community, ideal neighborhood um, where there's interaction, there's safety, um, you know, people are doing well. It's, it can be very middle class and you rip us, you just heartlessly like rip a highway through it and all that's going to be upended, like every aspect of that kind of life.
0: It's the first time that one of Moses' projects is significantly opposed, and politicians, uh, one village politician named Carmen DeSapio in particular, starts to take notice. He's a person with some influence. There's some stalling of the project, and there's this moment that occurs when Robert Moses is to talk, and the neighborhood activists, they are ready. Like, they figure he's going to argue with them. And he's so incensed that he doesn't even want to make an argument at the public hearing. He merely says, the only ones against this project are a bunch of housewives. And storms out.
1: There'll never be another Robert Moses. Like, no one will ever be able to amass this number of, like, government positions Mm -hmm. at once. I think it's actually illegal to do this now. He had done such a good job in the thirties. So, I mean, he started, he really did start with as parks as the parks commissioner and, um, and developed it out from there. I mean, he, he used parkways was his way to get into highway development was the idea of like, well, if you're going to have these parks all over the place, people need to get there. So I need to develop those too. So, I mean, it was sort of like, this was sort of his outward way of like, of, of accumulating all of this power and, you know, and it's, he was brilliant at it. He was, he was devious at it also.
0: It's kind of a classic story of David versus Goliath, if you will, of little people power versus big man power, people power versus money power, all of those things in the struggle between Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs. And at the height of the conflict between these two, it was almost like both of them were unfamiliar with each other's worlds. For Jane Jacobs, the idea of reforming everything in these concrete palaces, uh, one of the things she's opposed to is the building of the Lincoln Center Theater in uh, New York City, uh, which many see as a beautiful set of buildings, but to her, they're just these square concrete boxes. And that she felt strongly that architects and planners, Moses, the lead among them, were ignoring human nature and ignoring the way real people lived in cities. And she would spend her life fighting for those issues in New York and then later in Canada.
1: You could have these highways and have those communities. You could build around them. You could build them in a way that there was a balance, but he chose not to. Mm -hmm. He just chose, for instance, to just like rip through the Bronx, displace tens of thousands of people. These are just sort of like the different kinds of dangers that you get with infrastructure that I think infrastructure and developing and continuing to develop infrastructure for urban areas is incredibly important. But we've learned the hard way in New York City that it's, it doesn't always improve the lives of New Yorkers, building a big, shiny new highway or some kind of like new project.
0: But for all his greatness, Robert Moses may have been brought to his downfall by a single typewriter key. We mentioned how Jacobs kind of had the people power and Robert Moses, the power of the big money and the influence. Um, One of the things that Jacobs does is she has spies and activists who are watching things very closely, watching for any developments and, of course, uh, letting politicians know how they feel and creating an awful lot of trouble for politicians who previously had sided with Moses, and it was all upside for them. Uh, Moses was a very influential person, and he had the connection of other people that could do right by the politicians. Now, there was a downside to supporting Moses. And these activists would be at City Hall quite a bit. When Moses would try to sneak in a plan, which was one of his tactics, he would sneak in a plan with little notice and then bring the project to a hearing, hopefully with no one showing up. The activists at City Hall would find out. In fact, there were tipsters who were even working at the City Hall who were part of the project. In the second iteration of the plan, Moses and his allies, realizing that community groups were helpful in in this battle, and that there was a war, decided to create community groups of their own. These days we have the term, you know, fake news or astroturf uh, to describe groups that that kind of aren't really representing any part of the community but have a name like community for progress and things like that. But when the press releases for some of these community groups came out, they noticed that There was a faulty R key on the typewriter, and this was true of this public relations firm and also of these community groups. So one of Jane Jacobs' spies volunteered to visit the public relations firm, and he noticed a telegram from Rose Associates on a desk. Rose Associates, David Rose Associates, was a developer who had been chosen to undertake the project. Jane Jacobs came to the next public meeting armed with this evidence of a backroom deal. It's the same old story, she says. First, the builder picks the property, then he gets the planning commission to designate it a slum, and then the people get bulldozed out of their homes.
2: This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24 7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast.
1: His downfall. A lot of it has to do with New York's own financial crisis that happened beginning in the 1960s, of which you know he certainly played a role in the city's downgrade by that by that period of time. But by you know by this time, you're talking a lot more progressive sort of energies in city government, Mm -hmm. such mainly like mayors like you had Governor Nelson Rockefeller. You had mayors like John Lindsay who were a lot more swayed by those sorts of arguments that were being waged by Jane Jacobs, pushing against the kind of Robert Moses mode of developing a city. He was essentially over by the 70s, um, and that kind of, like, city building, those that kind of thought process, the things that he sort of, you know, perfected, that was sort of done by the 1970s. But it is sort of fascinating to see, like, could he have amassed, could he have continued to amass so much power that he was pretty much uncontrollable? I mean, he really sort of was in the 1950s. Was he
0: at all, and and I'm asking because I'm not as much familiar with him, his story, was he at all corrupt?
1: Well, that's a, the that's a thing, not not in the traditional, not in that old 19th century mm-hmm. concept mm-hmm. of, like, getting paybacks or whatever. And that was still going on in New York in the 20th century, trust me. And I'm sure he was able to maneuver through that.
0: And he wasn't, for instance, he didn't own the companies that did the work. He didn't put money in his, uh, any more than, say, his salary or whatever project fees he got. He didn't, you know, like, fill his pockets.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. He wasn't, like, he didn't have, like, like a controlling interest in a mm. concrete company. Mm. <laughs> or, for, <Right>. for instance... <laughs> As he was responsible for millions of feet of concrete in the city. Uh, but he, you know, he didn't, yeah, he didn't have that connection where someone like Boss Tweed certainly did. Um, you know, Boss Tweed was even, I think he was on a, he was on the board. He was a, he was a stockholder, I think, on the, on the Brooklyn Bridge. I mean, there was like, it just kind of like blatant conflict of interests um, yeah. going on back then that Robert Moses wasn't necessarily co- quote unquote corrupt in that in that way, um, it's, you know, more to the more to the point that he had amassed so much power that by the early, you know, late 50s, early 60s, he, no one could control him. Um, and so, you know, you imagine a world where he had somehow remained in power for 10 more years after and what that would have been like.
0: You know, it's, it's worth noting that there's side effects and some of that Moses money was coming from from new deal yeah. funding. And a lot of it was going to New York too. I think there are yeah. complaints in the rest of the country about how much was going <laughs> to New York.
1: <laughs> I get cause Cause Moses was brilliant. He could really, really knew how to get those, like to make projects qualify for that money. I mean, it, it's a, it's a long and drawn out fascinating project project. And obviously at this point I always draw everyone back to the Robert Caro book, The Power Broker, although you know it has a very specific point of view about Robert Moses. Um it's it's genius in how it kind of like presents how Moses negotiated with uh with the federal government and the city government and making these plans and getting all this funding for the plans. But, you know, I should add, um yeah, we're talking in this case about, you know, federally funded, state funded city funded infrastructure but it is funny that in the 19th century a lot of um a lot of our grand infrastructure was actually privately funded at first those um those you know are partially privately funded i should say um and
0: the subway lines and the rt and the those are all private companies in the in the beginning
1: yeah, I mean they were. Yeah, I mean, isn't that kind of amazing to to think about today? And then, I mean, those those elevated trains were all, all, all were all privately run, and this, you know, the trolley lines, of streetcars, everything. I mean, and then the granddaddy of them all, um, Cornelius Vanderbilt. In the nineteenth century, you know, he was—he could just—he just built a train. Like he, he had—he was the only one that had access. His 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 railroads were the only one that had access to actually come onto Manhattan Island, which in the nineteenth century that was just New York. So I mean, it's just—it's just amazing how much uh, of the in, infrastructure was developed by you know private operators who didn't really have the needs of New York City necessarily in mind, so.
0: Yeah, it's a useful critique, I think, uh, when evaluating an infrastructure policy as discussions start, if they ever get started on the, on this, on this particular round of infrastructure discussion. Uh, if there's massive infrastructure spending from the federal level, it's wealth, it's, it's worthwhile, you know, asking at least those two questions of one, who benefits, who, who personally is benefiting? Is there one company getting most of the grants? And, and then also what communities benefit and, and where is it going and how's it mixing with, with what you have there? I mean, I think everyone wants to, fix their bridges and maybe expand an airport or two but uh yeah when it when it gets to a lot of money coming in uh you know you wonder about it you also wonder when will it stop i mean and not to mm-hmm. not to sound like you know we just did a, a podcast on eisenhower and he had the um you know his uh farewell address he mentioned the military industrial complex because he saw that that was going to continue and it couldn't be stopped if you just have military spending in various congressional districts. When's it Uh ever going to stop? And that's always something to ask about massive infrastructure spending on the federal level. We all have a a few pet projects we want, but then when will it ever stop? I mean, these are all valid critiques. Infrastructure is, in a way, the ultimate subverting of democracy because to build a road... You're going to go through something, so someone's not going to like it, no matter what you do. Sure. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah.
1: I, I, love, I right here, I'm recording about a block away. Actually, you can't hear it because it's there's nice uh, soundproofing around here. But the the BQE, the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, which is a tried and true Robert Moses creation, is built through here. And um, before this was built, um, On the other side of that BQE is a neighborhood called Red Hook, um, which was an old kind of shipping, 19th century shipping, porting neighborhood. Um, Because of the BQE, because of this thing that he built, and the BQE, like, transports millions of people Mm. every year. I mean, it's part of this massive, um, massive um, interstate program. It's like, it's hugely important for for the transportation of people the moving around of people but it cut red hook off like it just like a limb and red hook you can't get to red hook by the subway and so this it ripped out like the main thoroughfare like hamilton avenue ripped it out and then as a result i mean the neighborhood was already like doing pretty badly i mean mm-hmm. it was um you know the, <laughs> There's the people who lived there were abandoned by this decision. And I mean, there's always going to be. Yes, you're totally right. In these infrastructure projects, there's always going to be people who lose their homes. There's going to be neighborhoods that get devastated.
0: Um, I mean, I think you uh, bring up uh, Brooklyn and I think it's interesting because that is kind of the exploding uh, area right now in terms of people wanting to live there. There, there's some some of these issues. I hear things uh, from people. Uh, you know, I don't really go to Brooklyn much, but I hear things about a lot of construction, a lot of disruption.
1: Oh yeah, so there's so Brooklyn's going through this. Um, there was like about ten years ago, Brooklyn started to be properly gentrified, mm-hmm. meaning that um, neighborhoods that were either kind of working class, middle class neighborhoods uh, those people got priced out of those neighborhoods or it would be cases like industrial areas where people weren't necessarily living but those industries had closed or those had moved out of New York so that people started moving into those and and made them kind of like slightly more affluent enclaves, the rise of the hipster whatever, that kind of thing mm-hmm. But you have now, you have you have that sort of gentrification now kind of working its way through various neighborhoods in, in Brooklyn. Those older gentr- gentrified neighborhoods like Williamsburg being one example are now going through a different kind of thing called a, sort of a hyper gentrification. And many areas of Manhattan and areas of Queens are doing this too and even some parts of Brooklyn where um, it's – it's brand new constructions the waterfront is being changed into like row after row of like really ritzy high-priced condos um so that's so that is you know what that's doing though to get back to this idea of infrastructure it's putting a huge weight and burden because now all of a sudden there are all of these people or a different uh, there's always been a lot of people in brooklyn It's a it's a hugely populated place. But what it's doing now is it's bringing a lot of people with money into Brooklyn and they're and they're also bringing a little some certain certain set of demands with them. So and so what the city is doing right now is trying to juggle all these different things. And, you know, Brooklyn's it's a it's a very fascinating uh, what's happening in Brooklyn is. Kind of happening all over the United States, though. You know, oh, there's I a think lot of so
0: because I think, yeah, I mean, uh, as we spoke earlier, New York, mirrors the other cities. I mean, San Francisco gonna hear the same thing uh, about all the tech yeah, guys the- moving in, and
1: yeah, I mean, it's it's insane. I mean, how do people how do people pay the amount of money? I mean, like Brooklyn is bad enough. San Francisco is insanely expensive, and you know, I mean, people. People talk about these Brooklyn neighborhoods like they're quote unquote discovered, like the quote new hot neighborhood. People have, people live in those neighborhoods. They've lived here for decades. You know, there's, there's neighborhoods that people have lived their whole lives in. And now all of a sudden, these sort of new waves of gentrification are pushing them out because the rents are, the, the rents are outrageous. And it's not just the rents, it's, it's, you know, it's anything like the grocery store is expensive. I mean, my, I don't live anywhere near an, ex- an inexpensive grocery store. There's a shift. And the thing is, is like a lot of those the things that are being brought in by that are actually great. Crime does go down. The streets are cleaner or safer. They're well lit. Um, there's a lot more amenities. There's a lot more people on the street. There's a lot more things to do. all of those things are good. And there are good aspects to gentrification if a city can handle it carefully and do it well but um what you know what i do what i what does concern me and so funny because i just did i recorded another podcast two, two days ago i'm echoing the same statements which is it can't go on like this forever there's going to be it's going to top out and so then what happens what happens when you have like a million luxury condos that have just been built what's going to happen if new york experiences something like it did in the 1960s and 70s you know like if the good times slow down let's just say yeah
0: no that's certainly that's a concern too uh anytime something's built i'm concerned that it's built right and will it withstand not just the the weather but also population changes i mean i think this is a huge problem with projects built after some of the slum clearance laws of the 40s and 50s and then these giant tower projects were built, which seemed like a great idea for service provision and for yes. probably some budget reasons. But then when you start figuring crime into it, they were just created to for for, for horrible crime conditions. Yes. And, and there's always these... Uh... Oh, a reminder to everyone that the voice you are hearing might be familiar to you if you listen to the Bowery Boys podcast. You're, I'm talking with uh, Greg Young of the Bowery Boys podcast. Podcast. He does that show with Tom Myers. Could you have ever imagined talking about great men and, you know, uh, uh, could you have ever imagined
1: <laughs> that, the, <laughs>
0: that the first of all, that the presidential election of 2016 would have two New Yorkers in it? And then yeah. second of all, that, uh, you know, our our Donald Trump, who also has a long history in the city, would become president.
1: Back in 2011, I can't remember the name, the, the episode number, mm-hmm. but you can look through our back catalog. I actually recorded a whole show on Donald Trump in 2011, and it was because he had he was going to throw his hat into the ring in 2012. I don't know if anyone remembers that, um, but the um, the election that eventually got us uh, Mitt Romney. But so I decided to look at his. <laughs> sort of like his career in new york city Mm -hmm. you know i could not have even imagined at that point (laughs) it's weird to listen to that show now because a lot of people will hate that show (laughs) because they're just like why did you do a show about trump i'm like it's why why not why not he's a he's a part of this he and his father friends
0: Absolutely, you can't you know you can't tell this the story we were talking about the downtimes of the of the seventies in the city, and you can't tell the story of the resurgence of the cities kind of starting in the eighties without talking about i mean I would talk about Koch too but i I think you have to bring up Trump and the father as well um as as part of that story and and you know the Grand Hyatt and him taking that bet on that.
1: I will give like I will give Donald Trump this credit. <laughs> he put, you know he decided to develop in midtown Manhattan in the seventies. No one like everyone was writing off New York as um you know that New York was at its absolute lowest when Donald decided that he wanted to like develop these hotel properties, his various properties in Manhattan and you know so so that's really fascinating to me it also is a reflection of of his like of his um sort of psyche i think because his he his father made his money building mostly homes for working middle class people in the Bronx, i mean in brooklyn and in Queens I mean you'll go through many neighborhoods and there'll be Fred Trump buildings all over the place you know so that's where they that's where they made um, mm. made their money and so he was a fair you know his father was a ruthless developer I mean it's like totally like father like son and I think that he also um you know his his father made all these connections with um, with sort of ruthless l- lawyers you know and so that is I mean that's another big Element of what Donald Trump would do in the eighties and nineties is that he would always enter these things with this sort of a uh, uh, a network of sort of legal protections and he would always be in court he would always be suing people to kind of get what he wanted i mean the um the story alone of the whole situation with the empire state building is kind of amazing because he, in the nineties, New Yorkers could wake up in the morning and have Donald Trump. It was Donald Trump versus the Helmsleys, You know?
0: (laughs) Oh, right. Yeah. The, the the big rivalry there. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean, I I don't want to get the, we have a whole show on it. Essentially the empire state building was owned by different people than the land. So there, (laughs) it's a very long story of how that kind of happened. But um, there were always going to be some sort of disagreements. And so Donald was on one side and the Helmsley's were on the other. And let's just say, I mean, I, th- I think that, you know, the Donald Trump that we see now, it's not a, it's not a surprising pr- person. It's If you look through his history in, in the 80s and 90s and how he developed projects here and he was a certain a bit of ruthlessness as well.
0: It's not a business that – that's one thing I'll say. It's not a business that allows – for um, somebody to be um, very uh, nice and respectful of you've got to deal with like workers and unions and deliveries and g- materials and be getting sued and big landowners and yeah
1: <laughs> yeah. And let's just start, let's just say that the the um, the temptations for being incredibly corrupt in today's real estate market are are still there to a great degree. I mean, I do feel like um, there are. Um, there are companies, there are people who are attempting to do things more even-handedly. So, I mean, it's not a, it's it's not just like a whole world of corruption. But, it, but like you know, in the nineteen seventies and eighties, um, real estate and real estate development was, um, yeah, it was a little a little different than it is today. I think. So, I mean, it is kind of funny that our our country has elected a, a real estate developer. When our whole country, like every, you know, every major city is dealing with this same sort of gentrification, hyper gentrification thing that, you know, real estate, that cities are being kind of boiled down to their value in real estate. So it's a good symbol. I think it's very symbolic <laughs> that he's our president right now.
0: No, great point.
1: Great point there. Well, here's a like a, th- a thought experiment which I've I I've certainly read about. If you think about who are our Vanderbilts in the 21st century, well it's like it's, you know, it's Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's it's That's Apple true. and Amazon and it's and so, you know, I mean I've I've read a couple articles of uh, sort of radically posed articles that are sort of interesting about the, the theory of like isn't the internet now a public utility, and is should that be? Is that going to at one point be taken over by the government, and is that even possible? And I mean, it's fascinating to think of the of the the Vanderbilts and the Morgans of the Gilded Age.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's certainly viable thought. Um, If you look at uh, phones, telephones were intensely regulated by the government from the early um, beginnings, the early uh, 20th century. By 1920, you had most railroads were almost completely under the control of the federal government. They had just been Uh so, you know, law by law, They regulated railroads more and more. They were the big villain. They were the big, um, you know, fat cats, all those railroads. They were going out of business and taking investor money and all these things. Yeah. And eventually by the time you get to 1920, a progressive movement and there's a, there's enough, there's pretty intense regulation of railroads. And then people start with trucking and trying to get things other ways. So it is interesting to see what might happen now, uh, with the internet as infrastructure. I know. Yeah, you know, there was a lot of talk about municipal n- municipalities doing muni Wi Fi. Mm-hmm. Never. I don't think New York ever needed to do it because there's enough private Wi Fi. But
1: there's some city run Wi Fi. I don't think very many people use it. I mean, thank goodness. I mean, I don't actually. I take that back. Do I? Do I like the fact that you we now have um, Wi Fi on the subway? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. For for a while it was like oh, yeah, wouldn't it be nice to have Wi-Fi down here so I could, you know, stream my podcast or whatever? But now that you're getting it and people are taking phone calls on the on the subway, I was like, oh, <laughs> I miss the days when this was like a zone, an internet-free zone, and we could just all be down here and, and inhabit um, a, a sort of like a 20th century world.
0: Hey, we've been talking with uh, Greg Young, of the Bowery Boys podcast. Now, where can people get your podcast?
1: Well, we're on we're everywhere that podcasts. Uh, you can find podcasts. Just type the words Bowery Boys, and that name. Um, we're named after a 19th century gang, although there was also a comedy troupe from the 30s that is also named after the gang. It was an actual street gang. Um, and so we're on you know iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher. We're on all you know most of the places you can find um, podcasts. Um, you can also go to our website, Boweryboyshistory.com. And, you know, we're on Facebook and everything and on Twitter at Bowery Boys.
0: Greg, thanks for coming on. My history can beat up your politics.
1: <laughs> no, thank you. It's been it has been a blast. I love talking about these uh these crazy <laughs> these crazy Robert Moses and his and the gang. So so thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. Want to thank Greg Young for coming on the podcast. Please check out the Bowery Boys Podcast podcast uh, New York City history I think you're gonna like it a lot if you're a lover of history you know how often New York City comes up on on this cast in one form or another during the 19th century you know it was like almost an eighth of the population lived in that one place so it's very important for some of the presidential elections they talk about everything and it's really a history of America. A reminder about the Premium Podcast, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Thanks so much for those that are supporting the program with the Premium Podcast. They're getting more episodes, and they're also helping me out. Thanks for listening.
1: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez